Book Three, Chapter Five, Part Two of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two by Henry Charles Lee, Book Three, Jurisdiction, Chapter Five, Part Two appeals to rome still the lucrative business of issuing letters of absolution and reintegration went on unchecked until pressure from spain which was insufficient to restrain their manufacture and sale at least induced alexander to betray those who had bought them on august twenty ninth fourteen ninety seven he issued a bull reciting how heretics who had been burnt in effigy had obtained from him absolution, rehabilitation, and exemption from the inquisitorial jurisdiction, to the scandal of the faithful. Wherefore, at the request of Ferdinand and Isabella, he now withdraws and annuls all these letters, except in the form of conscience. Even this did not satisfy Ferdinand, who, under the pretext that a papal secretary named Bartolomeo Florido had issued false ones, ordered the inquisitors to seize them when presented and to send them to him in order that he might communicate with the pope about them this was followed by decrees of the suprema january eighth and february twelfth fourteen ninety eight commanding all who had obtained absolutions and dispensations from rome to deliver them within a given time to the inquisitors who would forward them to the inquisitor-general for verification of their genuineness thus obtaining possession of all letters to the general terror of the owners ferdinand as we have seen was obliged to write to saragossa to protect alonso de la caballeria and the brother sanchez while isabella interceded june twenty sixth for a servant of hers who had procured such a letter and could not produce it then alexander was called upon for a more absolute surrender of those who had dealt with him and on september seventeenth he addressed a brief to the spanish inquisitors empowering them to proceed against all heretics notwithstanding all letters of absolution and reintegration heretofore or hereafter issued for all such letters were to be held as having been granted inadvertently what with spanish fanaticism and papal faithlessness the conversos were between the hammer and the anvil their only recourse was exile many abandoned spain and a portion of these found in rome a refuge for alexander welcomed them in view of the heavy imposts which they had paid for safety and toleration they also furnished him with material for a speculative outburst of persecution when in fourteen ninety eight he was in need of funds to furnish forth the magnificent embassy of his son caesar sent to bear to louis the thirteenth the bull of divorce from queen jeanne he appointed as inquisitors cardinal pietro isuale and the master of the sacred palace fra paolo de monalia who proclaimed a term of grace during which the spaniards suspect of heresy could come forward two hundred and thirty presented themselves the form of receiving and examining their confession was gone through with they were admitted to mercy and a salutary penance was imposed in lieu of penalties that might have been inflicted in spain what was the amount of this cannot be known 
but it must have been considerable, for the inquisitors could ransom them at discretion. A solemn auto de fe was celebrated in St. Peter's, July twenty-ninth, in the presence of Alexander and his cardinals. The penitents were marched thither in pairs, were reconciled to the church, abjured their heresies, and were sentenced to wear the San Benito and to undergo penance, after which they were taken in procession to Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, where they were relieved of the San Benitos and discharged. The performance evidently was expected not to be pleasing to the Spanish sovereigns, for part of the penance assigned was to furnish a notarial attestation that they would not return to Spain without license from the Catholic kings, under pain of relaxation as relapsed. There were doubtless intimations of Ferdinand's displeasure, which drew from these impromptu inquisitors a letter of September 10th to their Spanish brethren, and one of October 5th from Alexander to the sovereigns, in which the provision respecting return to Spain was emphasized. Ferdinand, however, was not to be thus placated. Indeed, he had already on August 2nd issued an edict designed to frustrate further attempts by the papacy to share in the profits of persecution. In this he ordered the execution without trial of all who had fled from condemnation by the Inquisition, and who should venture to return no matter what exemptions, reconciliations, safe conducts, or privileges they might allege. Any property they might possess was apportioned in thirds to the informer, the official, and the fiscal, and any one harboring them and any official neglecting to execute the edict was threatened with confiscation. The prevention of further speculative performances of this kind was doubtless the motive for the stringent regulations which we have seen above in 1499 and 1500 to prevent the escape of the conversos. Ferdinand sometimes recognized the papal letters, as in the case of some parties named Beltram in 1499, which he permitted to be heard by the commissioners appointed by the Pope. But there was too much at stake for him to abandon the struggle, and the papacy followed its practices of sacrificing those who sought its protection, while never failing to promise it. Early in 1502, the sovereigns remonstrated forcibly as to the great damage to the faith resulting from these letters, transferring cases to special commissioners and Alexander promptly responded by a bull evoking to himself all such cases and committing them to the Inquisitor-General Deza, to be decided by him personally or with assessors whom he might call in. To this Ferdinand objected, under the pretext of the hardship which it would inflict on the appellants, as Deza had to follow the migratory court and Alexander, with his usual pliancy, empowered Deza, August 31st, to appoint deputies to decide cases. Deza availed himself of this to restore the cases to the tribunals, instructing them to proceed to final judgment without regard to any papal letters that might be presented, and thus again the unlucky appellants were delivered back to their persecutors without recourse. Julius II was elected November 1st, 1503, and the next day, even before his coronation, he issued a motu proprio to Ferdinand and Isabella, confirming all graces and privileges granted by his predecessors, and especially those to the Inquisition. 
Still, appeals to the Holy See continued to pour in and to be welcomed, and, in 1505, Ferdinand remonstrated energetically, asking a recall of all commissions and drawing a doleful picture of the religious condition of Spain, which was saved only by the Inquisition from a schism worse than that of Arius. Philip of Austria, however, in his eagerness to win papal support, abandoned the claims of the Inquisition, and admitted to the Holy See that it could not refuse to entertain the appeals of those who sought its protection. Julius had no intention of divesting himself of the supreme jurisdiction, which was so profitable, and he took care to assert it in the commissions issued, in 1507, to Ximenez and Bishop Enguera, as inquisitors-general, respectively, of Castile and Aragon, by evoking to himself all cases pending in the tribunals and committing them to the new incumbents and those whom they might deputize. Like his predecessor, Julius, with one hand, sold letters of absolution and inhibition, while, with the other, he declared them invalid. A brief of November 9, 1507, recites that some persons, pretending to be aggrieved, have appealed to the Holy See, whereby the Inquisition is impeded. Therefore he decrees that all appeals must be to the Inquisitor-General, while those to Rome are to be regarded as null. The Inquisitors are to disregard them and not to delay on account of them. Still, the output of these letters was unchecked, and for a while Ferdinand fluctuated in his policy with regard to them. Sometimes, as in a Sardinia case in 1508, he ordered the Inquisitor to arrest and punish severely those concerned in procuring them, assuring him of the royal protection against the indignation of Rome. Sometimes, as in the Valladolid case in 1509, he assumes the current convenient fiction that the letters are issued surreptitiously, that the Pope, on better information, will withdraw them, and meanwhile they are held suspended. The trial is to go on, and the sequestrations are not to be lifted. Finally, in a pragmatica of August 31, 1509, a definite policy was adopted, combining both methods, and based on the principle that, if the letters were surreptitious, those who obtained them deserved condign punishment. This required all such briefs to be submitted to the Suprema for examination and reference back to Rome. If found to be rightly issued, exequator would be granted, but without this any one presenting such letters to inquisitors incurred, as in the Pragmatica of December 15, 1484, irremissible death and confiscation. Notaries acting under them were deprived of office, while secular officials were commanded to execute the edict under pain of 5,000 florins, and ecclesiastics under seizure of temporalities and perpetual exile. The ferocity of this, after a constant struggle with the Curia for twenty-five years, shows the importance attached by Ferdinand to the autonomy of the Inquisition and his determination to suppress all papal interference. Still, that interference continued, and Ferdinand could not but recognize that it was legal. In a case occurring in 1510, when a certain Augustinian Fray Dionisio on trial before the Tribunal of Seville, obtained letters committing the case to a judge who inhibited the tribunal. Ferdinand requested the Pope to evoke the case and commit it to Cardinal Chimenez, 
and further that all future cases of the kind should be similarly treated in all this long wrangle the diplomatic reserve is observable which assumed that the holy see was actuated by motives that if mistaken were at least disinterested the financial element underlying its action was fully recognized however and when the spanish delegates were sent to the lateran council in fifteen twelve among the instructions which they bore was one which said that rome must not in future defend as it had been defending the apostates of jewish race who were burnt in effigy at home while they purchased for money dispensations in the curia in fact charles v in a letter of april thirtieth fifteen nineteen to his ambassador louis carroz openly asserted that the briefs issued in the time of ferdinand had been obtained by the conversos through the payment of heavy sums the delegates to the lateran council of course affected nothing and leo x while his penitentiaries and auditors were as busy as ever was even more regardless than his predecessors of the papal dignity in annulling their acts after the fees had been paid in a motu proprio of may thirty one fifteen thirteen he alludes to the letters negligently granted by julius the second and himself through which the business of the inquisition was impeded wherefore he empowers chimenez to inhibit under excommunication and other penalties all persons even of episcopal rank from using such letters of commission to entertain appeals in the kingdoms of aragon the cortes of monson in fifteen ten agreed that no one should appeal from the tribunals to the pope but only to the inquisitor-general possibly this may have led to the invention of a method of reprisals which was infinitely annoying and difficult to meet a certain baldere metele procured from rome a citation to appear addressed to monsen coda the judge of confiscations in barcelona and some other officials this completely nonplussed the tribunal and ferdinand was driven to instructing november second fifteen ten his lieutenant-general of catalonia to consult with the inquisitor-general enguera as to the best mode of inducing metele to withdraw the citation he was obstinate especially as he had meanwhile procured citations on other officials and ferdinand could find no other remedy than notifying the diputados that the agreement of monson was a totality and that if the clause respecting appeals was violated Inguera would disregard the rest what was the result the documents failed to inform us but an even more troublesome case occurred in saragossa when sanchez de romeral on being prosecuted fled to rome march eleventh fifteen eleven ferdinand wrote to his ambassador to request the pope send him back to the inquisitor-general but the pope declined and ferdinand was moved to lively wrath in fifteen thirteen on learning that romeral who had meanwhile been burnt in effigy had procured citations on all the officials from the inquisitors down including even the consultors who had acted in the consulta de fe and that he had managed to get the citations published in tudela and cascante ferdinand wrote to rome in terms of vigorous indignation and ordered the archbishop of saragossa the captain-general of navarre and the inquisitors to consult with lawyers as to the best means of punishing this audacious attack on the inquisition 
apparently there was no means of parrying such an attack save coming to terms with the other side so long as the curia was willing to lend itself to this guerrilla warfare this was seen in somewhat similar case in sicily in fifteen eleven when a certain cola de aello condemned to perpetual imprisonment by the inquisitor bellorado managed to escape he took himself to rome as a penitent and there commenced suit against bellorado and his colleague the bishop of cefalti the bishop was obliged to obey a summons to rome the affair was protracted and gave so much trouble that when aello wanted to return to sicily and offered to withdraw the suit ferdinand agreed to let him come back pardoned his offences including jail-breaking and gave him safe conduct against further prosecution this method of fighting the inquisition would probably have been more frequently adopted but for the risk to which were exposed the notaries and scriveners whose ministrations were essential in the present case the one who sent the citation to the bishop was seized by the viceroy tortured and probably punished severely one or two cases will illustrate the chaotic condition produced by these contending elements especially after the death of ferdinand january twenty three fifteen sixteen had removed from the scene of action his resolute will and ceaseless activity miguel verdreña suspected of complicity in the murder of bernardo castelli assessor of the tribunal of balaguer appealed to the pope from the prison of the tribunal of barcelona the suprema of aragon vainly instructed its roman agent to make every effort to defeat the appeal leo x committed the case to the bishop of ascoli who ordered the tribunal to release verdreña on his giving security to constitute himself a prisoner in rome the inquisitors had lost all respect for papal letters and refused obedience whereupon the bishop appointed certain local prelates as commissioners to prosecute them and inflict censures the suprema inhibited these commissioners from acting but not before they had excommunicated the inquisitors who applied to leo for relief leo had already at least in appearance abandoned vedrena in a brief of may five fifteen seventeen addressed to cardinal adrian then inquisitor-general of aragon styling vedrena that son of iniquity evoking the case to himself and committing it to adrian but accompanying this brief and one of the same date was another of private instructions in which verdreña was alluded to as his dearest son and adrian was told that the case was committed to him in order that his dexterity might compound it the evidence was doubtful and verdreña had purged it sufficiently it would seem that he should rather be acquitted than condemned but if adrian thought otherwise he was to send a statement when leo would give final orders some three months later there was another brief to adrian about the excommunicated inquisitors if the censures were subsequent to the withdrawal of the case from the bishop of ascoli they were invalid but the whole matter was left to adrian we have no means of knowing what was the final outcome of the case but it sufficiently indicates the entanglements caused by the conflicting jurisdictions and the contradictory actions of the popes as his officials were bought by one side or the other another aspect of these affairs is exhibited in the case of the heirs of juan enrique de medina whose bones were condemned by the tribunal of cuenca to be exhumed and burnt 
the heirs appealed to Chimenez, who commissioned judges to revise the sentence, but these refused to the heirs a copy of the proceedings, by which alone they could rebut the evidence. Then they appealed to Pope Leo, who appointed three commissioners to hear the case and communicate the proceedings to the heirs, on their giving security not to harm the witnesses. The parties appointed, doubtless fearing to incur the enmity of the Inquisition, declined to serve, and the last we hear of the case is a brief of May 19, 1517, threatening them with excommunication for persistence. With the appointment of Cardinal Adrian as Inquisitor General of Castile as well as of Aragon, Leo, in 1518, confirmed the decrees of Innocent VIII and Alexander VI, granting him exclusive appellate jurisdiction, and Adrian, when Pope, repeated this in 1523 in favor of Manrique. Yet this in no way interfered with the reception in Rome of the multitudinous applications, both appellate and in first instance, which Charles V, in a letter of October 29, 1518, to Cardinal Santiquato, broadly hinted, was accomplished by the free use of money. How recklessly, indeed, the papal jurisdiction was prostituted at the service of the first comer is evidenced in the case of a mill in Paterna purchased by Juan Claver from the confiscated estate of Euphre Rinsesh. The Infante Enrique laid claim to it. The Tribunal of Valencia decided in favor of Claver and imposed perpetual silence on Enrique. On the death of Claver, Enrique brought suit against his heir before a judge of his own selection, whom the tribunal promptly inhibited. Enrique then procured a papal brief, inhibiting the tribunal, and committing the case to this judge. Then Charles V intervened, October 29, 1518, ordering Enrique to bring his suit before the tribunal. Papal letters issued after such fashion had no moral weight, and were lightly disregarded. The contempt felt for them was increased by Leo's perpetual vacillations. A brief of September 9, 1518, to Adrian states that in view of the iniquity and injustice of the tribunal of Palermo, and some others, he had placed all such matters in the hands of his vicar, the cardinal of San Bartolomeo in Insula, with faculties, to decide them and coerce the inquisitors with censures and fines. But now he thinks it better that these affairs shall be confided to Adrian, to whom he commits them with full powers. A contemporary case which attracted much attention at the time shows Leo in a more favorable light. Blanquina Diaz was an octogenarian widow of Valencia, whose orthodoxy had never been suspected but in 1517 she was denounced for Judaism and thrown into the secret prison. An appeal to the Pope brought orders that she be released on good security, be allowed defense, and the case be speedily tried. This brief never reached the tribunal, being apparently suppressed by the Suprema, whereupon Leo issued a second one, March 4, 1518, evoking the case to himself and committing it to two ecclesiastics of Valencia, Blanquina being meanwhile placed in a convent, and Cardinal Adrian being especially prohibited from intervening, anything that he might do being declared invalid. It was probably before this was received that the tribunal submitted the case to Adrian, who assembled a consulta de fe 
and condemned Blanquina to perpetual imprisonment and confiscation. The papal intervention seems to have aroused much feeling. Charles was ready to sign anything drawn up for him by Adrian, and, in two letters of May 18th and June 18th, to his Roman agent Louise Carroz, he ordered the latter to disregard all other business in the effort to procure the withdrawal of the two briefs. If the safety of all his dominions had been at stake, he could not have been more emphatic. Such interference with the Inquisition was unexampled. Unless the Pope would revoke the briefs and promise never to issue similar ones, the Holy Office would be totally destroyed, and heresy would flourish unpunished, for everyone would seek relief at the Curia, and the service of God would become impossible. He also wrote to the Pope and the Cardinals, while Adrian and the Suprema sent pressing letters. Leo, however, was firm in substance, though he yielded in form. In briefs of July 5th and 7th to Adrian, he ordered that everything done since his letters of March 4th should be annulled, Blanquina being restored to her good fame, her San Benito being removed, and she being placed under bail in a convent or in the house of a kinsman. As the evidence against her consisted of trifles committed in childhood, he again evoked the case to himself and committed it to Adrian. There had been active work on both sides in Rome, for the brief of July 5th gave Adrian full power to decide the case, while that of the 7th limited him to sending the results to Leo and awaiting instructions as to the sentence. Leo thus kept Blackina's fate in his hands. Adrian was only his mouthpiece, and the sentence pronounced her to be lightly suspect of heresy and discharged her without imprisonment or confiscation. A further instance of Leo's vacillation is the coincidence that the brief of March 4th in Blanquina's favor was dated the same day as Adrian's commission as Inquisitor-General of Castile, in which Leo evoked to himself all pending cases, whether in the tribunals or the curia, and committed them to Adrian with full power to inhibit all persons from assuming cognizance of them. With this before him, it is scarce a subject of surprise that Charles V, on April 30th, instructed his ambassador to tell the Pope that no letters prejudicial to the Inquisition would be admitted. This threat he carried out in a contemporaneous case which for some years embroiled the Inquisition with the Curia. Bernardino Diaz had been tried and discharged by the Tribunal of Toledo, after which he had a quarrel with Bartolomé Martinez, whom he accused of perjury in his case, and killed him. Diaz fled to Rome, while the tribunal not only burnt him in effigy, but seized his wife and mother and some of his friends as accomplices in his escape. In Rome he secured pardon in both the interior and exterior form on condition of satisfying the kindred of Martinez to the great indignation of Charles, who complained, not without reason, of this invasion of jurisdiction. Diaz also procured a brief ordering the liberation of the prisoners and the release of their property, but when the executors named in it endeavored to enforce it, the Toledo tribunal seized their procurator and compelled its surrender. This realization of Charles' threat exasperated the Curia and the Auditor-General of the Camera summoned the Inquisitors to obey the brief or answer personally in Rome for their contumacy. They did neither and were duly excommunicated. 
Charles wrote repeatedly and bitterly about this unexampled persecution of those who had merely administered justice. The case dragged on for some three years, and its ultimate outcome does not appear, but the family of Diaz were probably released, for in 1520 we hear of the removal of the excommunication in connection with the revocation by the inquisitors of their proceedings against Juan de Salazar, a canon of Toledo, residing in Rome in the papal service, whom they had deprived of citizenship and temporalities for some action of his in prejudice of the Inquisition. Another person who, about this time, gave infinite vexation to Charles and Adrian, was Diego de las Casas of Seville, the agent who bore to Rome the contested proceedings of the Cortes of Aragon and labored for their confirmation. He was well supplied with funds, and naturally was a persona grata to the curia. The Inquisition speedily attacked him, in its customary unscrupulous manner, by not only prosecuting him in absentia, but by seizing his brothers, Francisco and Juan, and their wives. To meet this, he procured a brief committing the cases to Adrian and to Ferdinand de Arce, Bishop of Canaries, with a provision that the party should present themselves to Adrian and Arce, and keep such prison as might be designated for them, and further permitting them to select advocates for their defense. Equitable as were these provisions, the brief excited hot indignation. When laid before the royal council, it was pronounced scandalous and of evil example, and its execution was refused. Charles wrote in haste to Leo, April 30, 1519, that it was scandalous and would destroy the Inquisition. He instructed his agents to procure its revocation to be forwarded by the next courier, and he invoked by letters the cardinals and the Spanish interest to bring what pressure they could upon the Pope. His urgency was fruitless, and when, in September, he sent Lope Hurtado de Mendoza to Rome, a special ambassador in the quarrel with Aragon, his instructions were to represent to the Pope the impropriety of harboring in Rome fugitives from the Inquisition, especially Diego de las Casas, and his colleague Juan Gutierrez, whose parents and grandparents and kindred had been reconciled or burnt. They should be expelled, and Mendoza was to labor for the revocation of their briefs and all other exemptions and commissions in favor of conversos. Mendoza exerted all his diplomatic ability, but although Leo admitted in a brief of July 13, 1520, to Adrian that for the evocation of cases to Rome, both on appeal and in first instance, led to delays, impunity for offenders, and encouragement of offenses. Still, he would not abandon Diego de las Casas. The grant by Sixtus IV of appellate jurisdiction to the Inquisitor-General, he admitted, had been beneficial, and, in hopes that Adrian would use it with integrity and justice, he evoked to himself all cases pending in the Roman courts, and committed them to Adrian with full powers. But he made no promises as to the future, and he especially accepted his physician, Ferdinand de Aragon, and his wife, Diego de las Casas, Juan Gutierrez, and the deceased Juan de Covarrubias, whose case had long been in dispute. To all these, and to their kindred, and to the third degree, and their property, Leo granted letters exempting them from the jurisdiction of the Inquisition, 
and committing them to the archbishop of saragossa and certain other ecclesiastical dignitaries complaints soon arose as to the manner in which these commissioners exercised their powers to the dishonour of the inquisition leo yielded by a brief of january eighth fifteen twenty one in which he substituted adrian and the nuncio vienesio de albergati with full power to inhibit their predecessors then in a more formal brief of january twentieth he deprecated the evil caused by the cases which were daily brought to rome and committed them all to adrian saving those of the five exempts in which the nuncio was to be conjoined with him and at the same time he revoked the letters exempting them and their kindred and empowering them to select judges for themselves it was a practical surrender although leo distinguished las casas and gutierrez by styling them his beloved children these cases will suffice to show how the traditional policy of the curia continued of taking the money of the refugees and appellants for protecting briefs and then abandoning them by revocations issued without even a sense of shame when their funds were exhausted in the protracted struggle yet undeterred by this there was a constant succession of new applicants who had no other refuge on earth and the valueless briefs were granted with unfailing readiness it was a source of perpetual irritation and charles was untiring in his efforts to counteract it not always observing due courtesy as when march twenty fifth fifteen twenty five he wrote to clement the seventh in violent language to revoke and erase from the registers a brief granted to louis cologne and to order his officials not to issue such letters as they were scandalous he no longer had the excuse of his youthful tutelage under adrian and yet his subserviency to the inquisition was complete this was manifested in the case of bernardo de orda a servant of cardinal colonna who had a suit against dr saldana about the treasureship of the church of leon saldana was a member of the suprema and when orda came to spain it was not difficult to have him charged with heresy and arrested by the tribunal of valladolid he escaped to rome and the prosecution was continued against him in absentia whereupon charles demeaned himself by writing to colonna july thirtieth fifteen twenty eight asking him to prevent orda from obtaining a brief of exemption as it would be an injury to the faith and also not to favor him in his suit with saldana meanwhile the popes continued to propitiate charles growing power by granting with as much facility as ever what was nominally exclusive appellate jurisdiction to the inquisitor-general in fifteen twenty three adrian the sixth as we have seen confirmed in favor of manrique the bulls of sixtus the fourth and alexander the sixth clement the seventh went even farther for in a bull of january sixth fifteen twenty four he not only evoked all pending cases and committed them to manrique but decreed that any commissions which he might thereafter issue should be invalid without the express assent of charles while all appeals were to be made to the inquisitor-general and not to the holy see and this he repeated june sixteenth fifteen twenty five still appeals continued to be made to rome and briefs to be granted requiring repeated confirmations of the bulls of fifteen twenty four and fifteen twenty five with inclusion of the letters obtained in the interval 
of which we have examples in 1532 and 1534. Charles was thus justified in enforcing Ferdinand's Pragmatica of 1509, as when, in 1537, he ordered the Corregidor of Murcia to prevent the publication of certain letters understood to have been procured from the Pope against the Inquisition. If presented, they were to be sent to the Council of Castile for its action, and parties endeavoring to use them were to be arrested and dealt with as might be deemed most advantageous to the Holy Office. The position of Charles, as the master of Italy and the protagonist of the Church in its struggle with Lutheranism, had thus enabled him to obtain for the Inquisition virtual, though not acknowledged, independence of Rome. There is a very striking illustration of this in 1531, when Clement VII intervened in favor of Fray Francisco Ortiz, a celebrated Observantine preacher, prosecuted for audaciously criticizing the Inquisition from the pulpit. He had lain in prison for more than two years, obstinately refusing to retract when the interposition of Clement was sought. He did not evoke the case, but, in terms of remarkable deference, July 1, 1531, he suggested to Manrique that, if nothing else was alleged against Ortiz, he might be held as sufficiently punished by his long imprisonment and might be restored to liberty in view of his blameless life and the profit to souls to be expected from his preaching. This Clement asked as a favor, moved only by Christian charity and zeal for the salvation of souls. To this carefully guarded request, the Inquisition turned a deaf ear. If the trial of Ortiz came to an end in February 1532, it was because he voluntarily submitted himself completely, and his sentence was by no means light, including public penance, which was rarely inflicted on an ecclesiastic. Paul III was more decided when his intervention was asked by Charles V, who, in spite of his bitter protests against papal interference, found himself obliged to appeal in behalf of his favorite preacher, Fray Alonso Virues. The Seville Tribunal had prosecuted the latter on a charge of Lutheranism, had kept him imprisoned for four years, and had sentenced him to reclusion in a convent for two years, and suspension from preaching for two more. Charles, who had vainly sought to protect him during his trial, supported an appeal to the Pope and obtained a brief of May 29, 1538, which not only annulled the sentence, but forbade his future molestation. When, in 1542, Paul III reorganized the moribund papal inquisition by forming a congregation of cardinals as inquisitors general for all Christendom, there was a not unnatural apprehension that this, even if not so intended, might interfere with the independence of the Spanish Holy Office. To representations of this, he responded by a brief of April 1, 1548, in which he characterized such fears as baseless. He declared that it was not designed to interfere with the authority of the inquisitors in Spain, and he formally revoked anything to their prejudice that might be found in the decree establishing the congregation. This brief remained to the end the charter to which the Spanish Inquisition appealed in its frequent collisions with the Roman congregation, and, but for such a declaration, it would probably have been subordinated. This in no way affected the continual applications to Rome for relief, nor the effort of the Inquisition to suppress them. 
it was a singular departure from the settled policy of the government in this matter which led the suprema in fifteen forty eight to utter a bitter complaint to charles v setting forth the facility with which citations and inhibitions and commissions were granted in rome and the daily royal cedulas dispatched to prevent them and yet when recently a converso presented to the royal council a petition stating that he did not dare to notify the inquisitor-general of letters concerning a case which had been decided the council issued an order permitting any notary to serve the papers and testify to the service with penalties for impeding it the popes were more consistent in their inconsistency we have seen how paul the third in fifteen forty nine and julius the third in fifteen fifty one confirmed the fourteen eighty four bull of sixtus the fourth insisting on the validity of paper letters in both the interior and judicial forum and threatening the curses of the bull in chene domini on all who should impede them yet in fifteen fifty a case in which papal letters were obtained led to vigorous remonstrance and julius by a brief of december fifteenth fifteen fifty one confirmed those of clement the seventh and paul the third besides evoking all pending cases and committing them to inquisitor-general valdez yet the very fact of doing this inferred the papal possession of supreme jurisdiction which it merely delegated a point of which the holy scene never lost sight the commissions to the successive inquisitors-general during the century contains a clause by which all unfinished business was evoked and committed to the appointee it is true that there was also a provision that no appeals from the tribunals should lie except to the inquisitor-general all other appeals even to the holy see being invalid and referred back to him who was empowered to use censures to prevent interference even by cardinals the popes could afford to be thus liberal in their grants for their irresponsible power enabled them to disregard or to modify these delegated faculties at discretion and these provisions never prevented them from entertaining appeals end of book three chapter five part two